We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Another jam-packed day uh, here at uh, the home of talk. There you go. Uh, Stanley Cup playoffs starting tonight. Uh, Edmonton LNLA Leafs uh, start tomorrow. Uh, and, of course, the big news, a threat of a federal public service strike. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Uh, and uh, another interesting point, the provincial liberals have announced they will not be deciding on a new leader until December of 2023, just before Christmas. That's like eight months away. There's nobody to drive the ship for eight months. Uh, very uh, surprising to hear that, uh, you know, considering the NDP had uh, uh, a leader uh, on deck in, in no time at all. Provincial liberals going to take another eight months uh, and of course, uh, the last leader uh, stepped down before the last, uh, uh, after the last election. So, uh, it's amazing how long a period it will be before the provincial liberals, uh, get their act together and, uh, get a new leader, but clearly in uh, disarray. Uh, 4.3 inflation rate expected to be announced tomorrow. That's tomorrow. SpaceX launched the big rocket. Uh, that has been, uh, postponed due to, uh, being called off in the last few minutes. Uh, uh, the feds, uh, feds, the federal government, to restore funding to Hockey Canada. We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, Education Minister Stephen Lecce going to be joining us a little later on. A uh, thousand new teachers uh, positions, education assistance uh, on the way. Uh, but we'll talk about that coming up uh, a few minutes from now as well when the Education Minister joins us. And uh, the race for Toronto's mayor keeps getting even bigger. Uh, I think there's dozens that are running now. Olivia Chow, the next one in. You might remember she was the the uh, wife of uh, former NDP leader uh, Jack Layton, and uh, says a more caring, uh, asked what her number one priorities were, uh, develop a more caring and more affordable Toronto. All right, good luck with that. Let us know <laughs> Let us know when you figure that out. All right, uh, as we mentioned, Stephen Lecce uh, holding news conferences earlier today to talk about uh, more money for uh, Ontario schools. Here's what Tino Trajani has to say. The province will be hiring about a 1,000 educators and spending nearly $200 million over the next school year in an effort to boost math and literacy skills, especially in lower-performing schools. In every stage of life, mastering mathematics and reading is critical. Yet in this province, too many children are falling behind. And the EQAO data confirms this. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says the ultimate goal here is to have students graduate with a competitive advantage, which will lead to a high-paying job. About $70 million will go to a new math plan, which includes doubling the number of math coaches in classrooms and the rest of the funding will be directed to boost literacy skills starting with an overhauled language curriculum in September. Karen Littlewood is the head of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. She says they weren't consulted on this and with 4,800 schools across Ontario, many students will be left out and the province is still coming up short. Tina Trajani, Global News. Here's what uh, the education minister had to say on the work that some of uh, Ontario school boards are doing and how some are failing. Because there are too many examples in Ontario, there's some notable examples and many other small examples in the province where they're not, uh, I think, at the standards when it comes to governance, 
uh, and using a more collaborative spirit when it comes to working to move the interests of kids first. All right, we've talked about this before, uh, the the job of school trustee, the lowest level on the political rung where many uh, future politicians get their start, but it is also the most underqualified position uh, that is really representing us. And we're seeing this recently with the Halton School Board and their inability to get a handle on a teacher who's wearing giant prosthetic breasts to school, uh, the York Regional School Board who sent out a note before Queen Elizabeth's funeral saying, don't touch anything on this. Don't even talk about it. Do not play any music. Do not even refer to the Queen's uh, funeral, even though this is of historical significance. Uh, and then, of course, the Peel Board, allegations of racism and interjections there and having to be take over and, taken over and run by the province. So clearly there are some issues with some school boards around this province that uh, are just losing touch of reality and what exactly uh, they are supposed to do. All right. Also, a uh, federal public service service strike. It was interesting. We were talking to Ian Lee about this on uh, last week, and he said it's less about money. It's more, more about them wanting to stay at home uh, and do their work from home and are asking for astronomical raises in order to get there. Uh, here's what uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, had to say on the ongoing conversations. We're going to stay focused at the bargaining table. We're going to stay focused on putting forward reasonable, responsible offers to try and make sure that we're both recognizing and continuing to recognize the extraordinary work done by public servants, federal public servants across this country, while at the same time being responsible about the taxpayer investments uh, and taxpayer funds that uh, go to pay their salaries. Getting that balance right is something that we all want, but that happens uh, not in negotiating in public. It happens uh, when we sit down, roll up our sleeves at the bargaining table, as both sides are doing in good faith. Uh, we need to make sure that we're properly supporting those who work in our public service. That's why conversations have been ongoing at the bargaining table for weeks now. There have been constructive advances and offers, and we're very hopeful that we're going to be able to resolve this. Uh, but it's at the bargaining table that these things happen, and we will continue uh, to do there, be there in good faith and work on trying to resolve this for all Canadians. Is it me or does he just keep continually say the same thing over and over again? It's just blah, 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 blah. Is it me? I don't know. I honestly uh, it- had to double check, Scott, whether I played the same clip twice there. Or, or is this about a different issue? I mean, are we talking about the, the strike here or are we talking about some other issue of the day that you could put the same answer in there to the same question or to a different question? Canadians uh, are working very hard to breathe moistly into the right. unions. Yes, and, and to everybody who's uh, trying to join the middle class and all that other stuff. If you're watching any of the women's uh, championship over the course of the weekend, unfortunately, they lost to the U.S. Uh, but in the middle of all of this comes the announcement that hockey can uh, Canada is now in the good books of Ottawa, and funding will return. Uh, surprise, Scott Stinson with us, national sports columnist at Post Media Network, and with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Are you surprised, Scott, that this announcement was made this weekend? Yeah, I mean, I'm really surprised at the timing of it, if only because uh, the Women's World Championship only happens once a year. It doesn't happen that often in Canada. You had Canada playing in a gold medal game against their great rivals, the United States, and two hours before a puck drop, someone decided this was the right time to make this announcement. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me as a timing uh, thing because it takes some of the attention away which should be a, from what should be a very 
positive, you know, event and day for for Hockey Canada and for the Canadian women's team. And so in that sense, I was surprised by the timing of it. Um, I can't say that I'm overall surprised that this has happened. It always seemed like eventually the funding would be restored. It was just very odd for them to announce it on this weekend of all weekends. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the eyes are focused on the tournament and the results of that, and then all of a sudden this comes out. Is this because this is a great PR opportunity with all the eyes on the game at this point in order to make the announcement, or are there real changes? I mean, is what's to announce? Well, it's a great question. I, I don't really understand the decision to make the announcement when they made it because, as I said, it just seems like it, it's an announcement that would have got attention regardless. You didn't need the the added attention of the women's gold medal game. And in fact, I'd argue you end up getting this like half people are sort of writing about the hockey game and some other people are talking about the announcement and it all gets mixed up in there. So I don't really understand the choice to do it when they did it. Um, as for what they were actually announcing, basically the, the federal government and the minister of sport, Pascal Saint-Ange had, had she said given them three them being hockey canada three um requirements to have their funding restored one of them was to sign a safe sport agreement which is was always going to be the case i mean everybody's all the organizations are signing it uh one was to implement the recommendations of a report that hockey canada commissioned um which apparently they are implementing i mean we have to take them at the word that they're implementing the recommendations and the third thing was to basically communicate more with ottawa about how things are going i guess and i, I don't mean to be facetious about it it was just like it was, it was sort of phrased vaguely like they will have to make sure that they provide regular updates and you're like, okay so none of these things seem particularly like they're a big deal or they or they speak to fundamental change of the organization they seem like the kind of obvious things that that you say somebody has to do when you have a change of management, which is what happened a few months ago at Hockey Canada. So, yeah, the part about it that just seems weird is that this stuff seems like it could have been done or resolved or announced at any time in the past, you know, few months or few weeks from now. And they, for some reason, chose this particular weekend and this particular day to tell everyone that this progress had been made. You, you would just think that they would first announce, okay, here are some changes which we've made to Hockey Canada or that they have made, and as a result of that, we are going to reinstate funding. But they just kind of come out and said, we're reinstating funding, and we, is the public confident that there's any changes that are being made, or is this lip service? Uh, look, it, I guess the public will have to decide the answer to that. I, I think that you can certainly it certainly feels like they wanted to be able to say, um, that they had made some, taken some strides and that some changes had been made. I mean, one of the strange things about this whole story, if you go back to when the scandal broke last spring and then the, um, the former president, former chief executive resigned, and I think it was October of this past year. So when you go back to those instances, I mean, there was all kinds of unanswered questions and what, what more would we find out about the alleged incidents that took place and what was done or what wasn't done in response? And then that stuff all kind of fell by the wayside once the, once there was a leadership change. And so this is really the first indication we've had that, you know, Ottawa has been paying any attention since then. So for them to sort of come out and be like, oh, by the way, we've decided the funding you stored, it does seem like there's a lot of unanswered questions going back several months that 
still don't have anything in the way of answers, at least publicly. So we will have to see um, as it goes forward whether there is any sort of resolution to those outstanding parts of the story. You would think that we would hear of the changes first, and then, as a result of the changes, the funding has been restored. But for some reason, we we haven't. Uh, what about separating the women's game from the men's game? Uh, can we label both the same, or are both dealing with the same problems? Well, I mean, look every every element of the scandal that was going on previously was was related to the men's programs. Um, there yeah. were two different world junior teams that were alleged to have been involved in sexual assaults, which of course are, are being, uh, investigated now. There were police investigations on both fronts were reopened, but we don't know what will necessarily come of that. And then the other aspect of it was there was some, you know, funding, the big story about the fact that they had this, this kind of curious fund on, on their books that they were using to settle claims. Um, that one, I suppose you could argue may be involved in the women's game to a certain extent if there were if you're dealing with injuries or or things like that but for the most part scott these were scandals born of the men's program and that's one of the things that's kind of strange slash annoying about about making this announcement on the day of the women's gold medal final is that yeah. those members of the program had obviously nothing to do with any of it so to kind of have their big day overshadowed by this announcement seems rather unfair that is a brilliant point. Um, we now know that funding's reinstated. Um, do we know why? I mean, is that safe? Is that fair? Well, look, I, I guess what we're doing here is they're saying we're, we're reinstating the funding. Obviously, the organization is, you know, takes in a lot of money. It talks about mm-hmm. it as a big deal. Everybody cares about the, the national teams. So at some point, they were bound to do this. The other part of it is that they, they have a board that is only serving for a year and they came in to replace the previous board who resigned. And then there's going to be a new board and a new executive next this coming fall. So I think my, your read on it is that once these new people come in, maybe that's when you'll start to see some real lasting changes in the way the place is run. Um, But maybe in the interim, they felt it was important to make sure the funding taps were turned back on before the, before the program just ran out of money. Scott Stinson with us, national sports columnist at Post Media Network, uh, talking about Hockey Canada getting their funding restored. Scott, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, you too, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were just talking about AI and how, you know, it's everywhere. But what about creatively? Can all of a sudden the Beatles have a new album out? Uh, or Elvis or anybody who's dead, Freddie Mercury? Uh, you know, you, you sample the voice, you re- re- rewrite a song for them, and you put it into the, into the machine there. And then all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, they're back. How long before we see that? How long before they just take a sample of one of my shows and then just write something else? I'm out the door and uh, you're listening to the Scott Thompson show every day, although it really isn't him. Is that going to happen? I'm not sure we'll get there, Uh, but we'll keep our eyes on it. That's for sure. All right. uh, Speaking of deep fakes, do you know what's even going on in the maple syrup business? Your maple syrup might even be a deep fake as well. What the heck is going on with society? Uh, thank goodness the researchers from the University of Guelph are hoping to create a new technology that will more accurately crack down on maple syrup fraud. Yeah. 
To talk more about all of it, Maria Corradini with us, Associate Professor, uh, Arl School, uh, sorry, Arl Chair in Food Quality with the University of Guelph and co-author of the Food Price Report 2022 and is with us now. Maria, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. How are you? Good, thank you. Why is maple syrup such a story? What's, what is the story here? Well, I think the story is food fraud in overall. Uh, food, you know, the more the more pricey the food is, the more susceptible that is to food fraud. Um, maple syrup is not the exception. So, for example, if you go for a nice steak of tuna fish, you know, most of the time you don't get actual tuna fish. Uh, so the same happens uh, to a certain extent with uh, with maple syrup, with honeys, uh, with specialty oils. Um, so, yeah, food fraud, I, th- I guess that is the story. So really, maple syrup is just one aspect of this. Food fraud is everywhere in some form. Is that accurate? Yeah, and it has been going on since you know, the, 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 the beginning of times. So many of the spices have been replaced for uh, other products that are cheaper. And the same happened to a certain extent in maple syrup. Um, if you replace, for example, part of the maple syrup by a cheaper sugar syrup that could be, for example, from rice or corn, uh, and it costs one-tenth of the maple syrup, of course, that you're making a significant profit there. Uh, could we use the same example with with milk? I mean, there's some chatter about, you know, they're calling certain products milk and they're not technically milk. Is that accurate? Well, depending on what you're talking about, you know, in the case of milk, for example, dilution of milk is something that has been going on forever. Uh, so adding some water to milk, well, that would be food fraud. Basically, mm. you are obtaining less milk for uh, the price that you are paying for. Uh, and of course, the nutritional value and even the safety of the milk might be compromised in that extent, you know, depending on the quality of the water that has been mixing. Um, so there are other issues that has to do, for example, uh, with plant-based uh, milk like products. In that mm-hmm. case, you know, we are talking about a completely different product and it's not, uh, it's not something that is contemplated without, within fraud. Uh, maple syrup, a Canadian tradition, it's something that a lot seem to be very, very serious about, especially if you go through the province of Quebec. I mean, there's nothing like it. It's the best in the world. Yet this is one of the most commonly altered foods. How do you decide what's the University of Guelph doing to uh, to set up some sort of standard here? So one of the things that we are doing, particularly in my lab, uh, is trying to develop a new method in order to assess uh, whether maple syrup is adulterated or not, uh, based on uh, some compounds that the maple, the maple syrup has, has in it. Uh, most foods, uh, believe it or not, they have uh, glow-in-the-dark compounds within them that are naturally present uh, and are very characteristic of that particular food. So one of the things that we are doing is mapping these glow-in-the-dark compounds and generating the fingerprint of the maple syrup. We compare that with the adulterated ones, and the and the fingerprint uh, varies significantly. Uh, so that would be a good way to approach better detection of uh, adulterants in maple syrup. How do you decide what meets the criteria of this is stamp maple syrup? This is the best thing. This is the real thing. How do you arrive at that criteria? Well, there are 
sensorial tests in order to do that. Uh, from our perspective, you know, the lack of any contaminants or uh, adulterants, of course, that it would be what we are aiming for. So would all of these fingerprints of maple syrup be the same or are there obviously common denominators there? Um, but what about uh, companies as they produce this and such and perhaps add some sort of additive, whether it's for preservation or what have you? Uh, but is all maple syrup basically the same? That's an excellent question. Uh, and no, not all maple syrup is going to be the same. Also, if it is being produced, for example, in Quebec, Ontario, or Maine, it's going to have their particular characteristics. And it's funny that you mention AI because one of the things that we are doing in order to de-scramble these fingerprints uh, is using AI uh, in order to help us uh, find the commonalities and the discrepancies uh, that are uh, related to either the presence of the adulterant or, uh, you know, some characteristic that is geographical in nature or processing in nature, as you well said. Are there higher standards or different standards in every province? I mean, one may have a different product than the other. Is that accurate? Oh, I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, I'm normally uh, the um, the most prevalent standard is that at least they have to have 66% uh, of uh, de uh, 66 uh, degree bricks, which is the amount of sugar that is present in the maple syrup. Uh, and that's common to everyone, uh, to the best of my, my knowledge. Um, I'm not quite sure if uh, the, the grading change, you know, between countries or, or between regions, uh, to tell you the truth. So base maple syrup should all be the same. Uh, it shouldn't change that much. Exactly. How do you actually test with this, you know, uh, all of a sudden there's the big vat and you stick a little uh, uh, strip in there? Or how, how would you actually test the maple syrup? Well, because you are generating this phenomenon that is called fluorescence, uh, one of the things that you need to do is shine light of a particular wavelength onto the sample and collect the emission from the sample, the glow, you know, that that sample, uh, that, uh, that sample generates. Um, and we use a detector, uh, a very... Uh, what we, we have different resolution detectors and uh, we use uh, them in order to figure out if the glow uh, has the appropriate color and wavelength. So you're trying to identify an authentic fluorescent fingerprint of maple syrup and then that exactly. will be used. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, so how big an issue is this uh, with maple syrup? Because it seems every season we hear some sort of story about shenanigans going on with maple syrup. <laughs> well, you know, uh, like food fraud is something that changes. And each particular commodity, they have a different incidence of food fraud going on on them. Uh, usually oils are the ones that are most targeted. Uh, commodities. So usually, you know, from the uh, tested samples that the CIA ran last year, for example, in the case of oils, it was 30%. 30% uh, of the samples, they have some, uh, they didn't comply with what they suspected from them. Uh, in the case of honeys uh, and probably maple syrup is around 10%. 
Maria Corradini with us, Associate Professor, Arosh Chair in Food Quality with the University of Guelph, co-author of the Food Price Report 2022, University of Guelph, making sure that your maple syrup is what they say it is. Maria, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton trustees are set to uh, stop naming public schools after people. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, people are a problem. You never know what people might be up to. You might name something after people, and then it turns out those people have done something incredibly wrong, and now you got to remove those people from the from the nameplate. Uh, legendary black civil rights activist Viola Desmond could be the last person to have a Hamilton public school named after them if this all goes through. Uh, many are calling this incredibly short-sighted, some saying woke, some saying it's politically correct. It just, to me, typifies what school boards, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are about. Uh, Peel, under the board, uh, the board put under supervision uh, during the pandemic for racist allegations. Uh, the Halton School Board and the teacher with a large prosthetic breasts that uh, the problem they don't seem to solve and just punting around. Uh, and then, of course, we remember the York Region School Board, who during Queen Elizabeth's funeral sent out a memo telling all of the schools, all of the teachers in York Region, do not mention Queen Elizabeth's funeral as it could traumatize the students. Forget that it's a historical event. And education is a part of all of that. No, we got to protect the kids. Who the heck are running these school boards? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, I'm glad to be here. What a topic. Unbelievable, Scott. Uh, to me, you know, uh, God bless everybody that jumps into the school board uh, realm. It is the sort of starting point, the bottom rung of the ladder in political life. But man, having dealt with them with my kids and such, there are a lot of people who are simply not qualified to do this. Uh, your thoughts on the idea that uh, Hamilton trustees are set up to stop naming public schools after people. What you know when Will told me about this story, I thought to myself, okay, so what do you name them after? Um, a tree? Exactly. Uh, it's Maple Street color? Public School. So what, if, what if you named it Orange Public School? Does orange? Was, is everybody going to take like bad connotations about orange? I don't like oranges. I like lemons. I, I you know what are they thinking? And is this what we want our school boards to be to be dealing with? Like this is really going to have a profound effect on the educational system as we know it. I mean, honestly, I I I, I can't. It, and and I'd like to even know what they were thinking of the. Uh, you know, the other options it would be that you could use to actually name a um, a school after. And why? I mean, I think, you know, Scott, you often say to me, oh, Alyssa, you know, you're too progressive. You know, you're uh, you're defending the woke mob. I, you know, in this case, I do I say that, Alyssa? <laughs> well, you kind of say it. But okay. you know what? In this case, though, I have to agree with you. I think that this is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. This is the sort of thing where you think, should I get out of bed in the morning or should I not get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> Who am I going to offend? Who am I not going to offend? I, I, you know, I mean, honestly, what bright spark 
on the Hamilton School Board, came one of the trustees, which is an elected position, may I remind everyone. But let's be honest, not many, not many run for school board. It's usually a pretty well, open. You know what they do, and some of them look at the gateway to politics. So heaven forbid yep. you run for the school board and get a taste of politics and think you can go further. I mean, really? I, I cannot see this absolutely getting any traction. I mean, if anything, I think that it should 100% be reversed. I, I, I think that this is absolutely going too far in one direction. And this all, ha- this all has to do with A, being woke, I think in the worst way. And B, it's all about this sort of feeds into this pervasive cancel culture that we now find ourselves in because we are afraid to offend. Is this less about naming uh, or the name of a school and a sign of other problems? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, in terms of the other problems, what are we what what other problems are we talking about that in so just, years from just now being that just being out of touch? Somebody did something that offended somebody. And oops, now you can't name it after that person anymore. I mean, Really? Really? This is what we're worried about? The digging into the deep, dark closets of people's histories that someone might want to bring up and sully somebody's reputation, either deservedly or undeservedly so? I think this is this is beyond the pale, Scott. Honestly. Well, it's this, it's the same, you know, uh, Ryerson. Why was his name on anything? Well, because he was the first minister of education uh, and has many attributes to his credits to his his work, including the first to bring music and arts into the school place. But and we also forget to, to, to start the public school system. But I yes. think that, you know, the other thing, too, is, is that, you know, this is when the tail wags the dog, Scott. This is when you get five angry people who try, who are, uh, you know, try to affect policy so that nobody anywhere ever gets offended. These are the same five angry people who got participation ribbons for for everything because maybe they would cry that they didn't finish first, second or third. I mean, honestly, is this where we're at now? Unbelievable. Well, it's certainly where the Hamilton uh, District School Board is right now. Uh, Trustees set to stop naming public schools after people. Uh, maybe pet names would be good. Welcome that, to like, Tucker School. Would, it's like, what, what would you name it? Like, what would I you name a school? After? I would like, guess I'm the some boxes here. I don't know. I would guess. <laughs> I would guess the street that it sits on. I don't know. But then there could well, be several schools on that street. There was a big brouhaha over yeah. Dundas. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, a street that runs right through Toronto that we should rename it. Uh, yeah. And every business who's ever on Dundas should have to change all their letterhead, all their business documentation, because somebody's aff- offended by something that Dundas did, you know, uh, many, many, hey, many decades, years not ago. Only, not only do we have the street out here, we got a town named Dundas. What do you do with that? All right. Enough's enough. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture <laughs> expert. Will we, we will try to solve the world problems again at a future date. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's so rare, I, we agree, but I did enjoy this. <laughs> All right. All right. You remember that uh, the Ontario Liberals, obviously, uh, at one time, were a, a major powerhouse. The McGinty days, uh, Premier Win at the beginning, and then, boing, the wheels just fell off the uh, the party. And Stephen Del Duca, the last leader, uh, didn't fare too well, although he did go on to uh, win mayor. I believe it's Vaughan, uh, but uh, certainly lost the uh, uh, the campaign for the Ontario Liberals. And since 
since then. We've been waiting for uh, the Liberals to rally together and talk about a new leader or what. There was uh, speculation a while back that they were chasing Mike Schreiner of the uh, Green Party in order to lead the party. Then there was chatter of Bonnie Crombie. Uh, Mayor of Mississauga was, was perhaps going to do it. And now we're getting news that there won't be a leader for another eight months. They're waiting just before Christmas. Uh, they're going to uh, announce who the new leader is in early December. Why taking so long? Why does it? What does this say about the party and their positioning? Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. And with us now, Wayne, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. So what do you think the reasoning is behind this, Wayne? Why wait so long? Why not get the wheels back on and build some momentum? I, I suspect that... Uh they anticipate, if you look at the calendar of six weeks or so, the house is going to rise for the summer, may not come back till mid to late September, be it only a short fall session before they leave on uh, winter uh, break. And so I, 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 their thinking is that we really don't see the need to race ahead and, and, and push a vote and, and a, for a new leader gives us gives them more time and people considering running for that position to work things out on their own end and to get their campaigns in place i i just think they see it's it's a slow part of the news cycle and uh, there's no harm in them waiting and you know unless something untoward unexpected happens i think that's what i've just described as likely the case the ontario legislature will look oftentimes more like a museum than a, a legislature. I can see having this discussion after losing an election, but that was months ago. I mean, you know, and again, there was chatter of Mark, Mike Schreiner. There was chatter of Bonnie Crombie. And, you know, we were getting ready. Oh, it's going to get interesting now. And then all of a sudden it, it grinds to a halt. Uh, uh, what is the risk of, of, of even getting on board and at least, you know, picking a leader? I mean, policy is one thing, but, uh, you know, you've got to get to that point. Does it deliver the illusion that this this is a party that's in quite disarray right now. I, I suspect their own thinking is that running a, the, the vote itself in December allows them uh, to, on the fundraising end, to try to capture end of year uh, donations from their supporters uh, before tax season. It allows them to launch, you know, so try to build some momentum around who the new leader, whoever that may be. Uh, with uh, a more aggressive launch campaign once the, the leader has been selected. And I, I suspect there may very well be some who think that to this point, they really don't have a, 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 a leader, a candidate, I should say, for leader, who is going to set the house on fire. So why, why rush it? Other provinces have elected, uh, liberal parties have elected to drop liberal name. Uh, British Columbia has just done that very recently. They want to change the brand. Is Could that be perhaps what the Ontario Liberals are thinking, that they're going to change the brand here? Is the brand become negative? I don't, I don't believe so. Uh, I, one, one should keep in mind uh, the Liberals have, federally have a very strong organization in the province of Ontario. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think the federal party on its own would, would if you like, ha would have an interest 
in seeing the provincial liberal band uh, brand continue. So I, you know, I, I don't expect the party is somehow uh, quietly getting together and musing about dropping the the name or or whatever. Uh, I, I just suspect that uh, there hasn't been a rush to get to the front of the line in terms of leadership aspirants for the party. Uh, we are, you know, so a, a leadership campaign where there aren't any. Uh, leadership candidates who catch the imagination of the public, mm. of the press, is not going to be one that's going to generate a lot of enthusiasm, uh, a lot of support for the party going forward. So I think they prefer to have a, ultimately a candidate and a leader who can hopefully do that. Does this say that at this point they don't have that? They have, uh, whether it's the Mike Shriners, the Crombies, whatever, that's not materializing. There is nobody there that can steal the spotlight. So if you, they've got nobody, they're just going to cultivate until they do? I suspect that that's part of, of the calculation. You're quite right. They may not at this point have someone who they think can really set the house on fire with the voting public. And, uh, you know, they they would rather uh, wait for that than end up with a candidate. Let's be frank. Uh, Del Duca was uh, wasn't didn't like the fire at any point in his tenure as leader of the party. No. Is this how big a gift is this for the NDP, the provincial NDPs? I don't think it's a gift. I, I think the, the, the governing party is, I think, comfortably in control of things. Uh, I think it, uh, for, if you like, a lot of the kind of party pros and activists have their uh, attention right now focused on the, the Toronto mayoral, mayoral election uh, mm. this June that will, will keep them busy and, and uh, again, let that run its course. Don't try to compete with that. Uh, and and watch what it, as you. So we'll wait. We'll wait, people, to join the the, the leadership race. So we'll wait to see who do, who fails for the uh, for the mayor's race, or, or or who doesn't make that work for them, and they could be potential liberal candidates for the province. It, there may be one at least one candidate who who would be in that camp currently. But I think more it, more importantly. Uh, that's going to suck a lot of uh, yeah. news attention in the next six weeks, in part because it's going to be a crazy election. Twenty five candidates, yeah. at least eight or ten who could claim to be viable, legitimate uh, candidates for the office of mayor uh, of, uh, of the city of Toronto. So I, I suspect that's going to command a fair bit of attention uh, from now until it, it ends in, with the election in June, July, I guess. Um and uh, then it's summer. Parties yeah. don't do anything in the summer. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus of Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, Ontario Liberals announcing they will wait until December in order to select a new leader. Wayne, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. well you're more than welcome. Thank you. You too. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, Education Minister is standing by. Ontario unveils a new math literacy plan, including triage support for struggling schools. Ontario plans to roll out curriculum changes focusing on literacy and math skills during the upcoming school year, including a screening test for kids in early years of education. And to talk more about all of this, Stephen Lecce is with us, Minister of Education for the province of Ontario. And here now, Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much. Good to be back, Scott. So uh, I want to get to something, Stephen, before we get to your announcement here, and that is uh, came coming out in the news today here locally in Hamilton. School trustees are set to uh, to stop naming schools, public schools, after people. Uh, the last one recently, uh, Viola Desmond, obviously black rights activist. What are your thoughts? I mean, why are we not educating rather than canceling? What are your thoughts on, I- I'm not sure what we're going to name schools. Maybe they'll just be numbers I'm, uh, or, or street names or what have you but your thoughts on removing the names of people from schools or the addition of any more in the future you know look i think uh opposed to trying to cancel history we should learn from it i think there are incredible uh examples of learning from history both to not repeat it uh and frankly to be inspired by those in the past uh that helped to build our country Uh, i think you know we need to spend more time on what actually matters to the success of a child. Here's a great case study. You've got a school board or a group of folks who are spending more time. I mean, if we can't name a school after Viola Desmond, I mean, by that logic, we're never going to honor any Canadian. So, you know, I think they just should spend more time on helping kids get ahead uh, when it comes to student success. It's a great example of what I'm trying to do in the education system. We focus it on what matters. Scott, I haven't heard a parent. I knocked on literally tens of thousands of doors. I meet people all the time. I work seven days a week. I have yet to meet a constituent or a parent who told me in any way this was an even mildly pressing priority for them. So Hmm. school boards and governments need to reflect the priorities of the people we represent. The bill I introduced today will ensure that by compulsion and the mandate where school board priorities are provincial priorities that deal with seeing achievement and lifting standards. And I'll tell you, you've given me another case study for why today's legislation is important. Oh, and there's, you know, York Region canceling or not talking about the Queen's funeral because it might uh, uh, tra- uh, tra- uh, uh, cause uh, yep. uh, care, uh, n- not needed care for the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling here, because, of course, uh, it might traumatize. That's the word I was looking for, the kids. Uh, we've got the, seat, the situation. Can't talk about our head of state. I mean, it's uh, it's just it's a reminder that we got to get back to what matters. When you talk to parents in your program, and I talk to people across the GTHA in this province, everyone is saying my kid is falling behind, and I need the system to be more focused on a student achievement. So this bill does that. It forces upon school boards to emphasize reading, writing, and math as the central focus in improving outcomes. It's actually going to challenge the status quo because I think the problem in education is, you know. It's just it's very static. We haven't had a review of the Education Act in a generation. So this is a meaningful overhaul asking everyone involved to work smarter and harder and lift our standards to produce better academic results. Because I don't want to see another generation of young people living in their parents' basement because they can't get a job that pays them well enough related to their skills. We need to reach higher and expect better, and this bill is going to do that. All right, you're talking about adding new teachers, education assistants, uh, the number of 1,000 being floated around. Uh, how much of these are teachers, education assistants? You've even used, the, I've heard the term math coach. Explain all this to us. 
Sure. So we're going to hire, uh, today we announced a total of 2,000 new teachers in Ontario. We're going to be support the hiring of those roughly 2,000 teachers. About 700 are going to be focused on literacy. These are our frontline educators. The reason why we did 700 for educators is uh, for literacy educators is because uh, we're going to be screening every child in Ontario, part of our literacy plan. Every kid, kindergarten, senior kindergarten, grade one and two, will get a literacy assessment based on the result. Uh, there are tests, uh, there are those assessments, those screening assessments twice a year. If they are not the provincial standard, then what we're going to do is we're going to provide them with direct support, small group interventions to get back on track. So it's not that we're assessing a problem but not doing anything to solve it. We actually have a significant amount of staffing in place to help. We also are overhauling our language curriculum this coming September, which the Ontario Human Rights Commission has strongly urged us to do. The second thing on math is we're going to double the amount of math coaches. Uh, there's about 781 teachers. These are frontline math educators that are being hired. They're specialized in math. And we're going to use them to help improve numeracy and financial literacy and mathematical skills. And we're going to hire, we have rather, we're committing to hiring math improvements uh, action teams, if you will. These are essentially a long title for a group of some of the best math teachers in Ontario. We're going to bring them in the ministry. And I'm going to deploy them to school boards and schools that have historically and almost consistently been underperforming. Because I don't believe we should be sitting idle when we see low performance uh, and continuously low standards. So this allows us to increase math and literacy across the board, helps us to screen kids at the front end before it's too late, and there's long-term economic uh, and productivity and mental health impacts of illiteracy. It helps us to increase standards. And we're going to hire another 1,000 teachers announced today for de-streamed courses, meaning kids going into grade 7 and 8 and 9 as they go into grade 9 we're going to increase the amount of supports for them to make sure that they enter those courses uh, with more staffing in place just to make sure they succeed in grades 7, 8, 9, and 10. So overall, it's a huge lift. It's, 180, it's $170 million of investment. We've never done something like this, of this over $180 million rather of investment. We've never done something of this scale. But I believe we need to refocus the system on what matters. And parents have been clear, reading, writing, math, STEM education, these things matter most. And so the bill and the plan we unveiled yesterday and today is all about refocusing the system on those fundamental skill sets. Uh, the president of the Ontario Secondary Schools Teachers Federation said that it sound, quote sounds like a uh, sounds like positive moves, but they're upset that the union hadn't been consulted. Uh, your thoughts on the unions um, not being consulted through this? Should they have been? What's the process? You know, I think the one stakeholder in the education system that's voice is never heard is that of parents. I mean, unions are, they're in the news. They're working with the ministry. They're in front of all the parties. They're very sophisticated, well-financed groups. The everyday students uh, and their parents in this province is increasingly sidelined by governments and bureaucracies, school boards, et cetera, who are trying to put, you know, do their own thing uh, without really understanding who we're here to serve. The greatest stakeholder, those with the greatest skin in the game, are parents as first educators. And my commitment to them was to fulfill the overwhelming recommendation they made to me and to many teachers, too, who urged us to do this. I mean, one of the requirements is that for the College of Teachers, talking about our uh, processing time for teachers, is to make it easier to hire passionate educators in Ontario to work in schools, something I know our unions have called for that we're fulfilling. We're going to reduce the amount of days it takes the College of Teachers to certify a, a teacher both from Canada or from abroad. 
We're going to allow more flexibility to hire experienced people, mid-career individuals in our classrooms. We're going to hire more of their members. We're talking to 2,000 frontline educators that are going to make a difference in schools. So all of this is designed to help kids. I don't want the discussion to move anywhere but what's the best interest of children. If they disagree, then they should state why they oppose, for example, uh, a plan to screen children or to increase supports or modernize the math curriculum so there's financial literacy mandated in every single grade. If there's a concern they have substantively, they can mention it. Otherwise, my message really is these are the clear priorities of parents, and my hope is all of us are going to come together unify the system and make the improvements necessary that many families believe should have been done over the past many years. Minister of Education for Ontario, Stephen Lecce with us. Changes coming this September. More teachers and help on the way. Stephen, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you. Have a good day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have talked about artificial intelligence uh, quite a bit on this uh, show of late, and it's 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 incredible. It's incredible what you see. There's all sorts of things uh, floating around, including uh, the Pope in a fashionable coat, uh, JT, uh, Justin Trudeau being interviewed by Joe Rogan, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we've talked about it, whether it's kids with essays or, or homework, and, but it really virtually affects every single industry in some form. I told the story the other day about my kid showing me this, uh, high school student, he is, and put my name into it and asked about me. Uh, for, you know, initially nothing came up, but as he reformed the question, uh, it, it fabricated a little page story about me and this show. But it also brought in another Scott Thompson, that being the one from the kids in the hall and uh, obviously a comedian, and also talked about Hamilton, not only the show and the city, but it being a musical. So, you know, garbage in, garbage out, out of all of this, uh, perhaps a third of it was accurate, two-thirds wasn't. That being said, there are certainly lots of examples, as I've just mentioned, uh, that are on the Internet that are quite convincing. Let's bring in Mark Busser, Professor Experimental Education, Social Sciences at McMaster, and is with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks for having me, Scott. How scared should we be of this, Mark? I mean, it's unbelievable what we've learned in the last few months about all of this. As I said, the story about uh, pulling up information, garbage in, garbage out, uh, you know, kids, that you're, you're going to get caught if you don't verify it. But some of the other stuff we're seeing is just unbelievable, and it is getting better. It's getting more refined. Right. I think it's, uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of new questions that are being raised over the past few months as we've seen these amazing things technology can do, but also these uh, glaring mistakes. So I think the one new wrinkle is that video is being added in, and that's going to pose a lot of challenges for, <clears throat> sorry, for news media and for universities and for the students and citizens that rely on them. What is your biggest fear here? What is your biggest concern? Well, I think there's two sides. Uh, on the one hand, um, the most obvious one is that if if video or if uh, long form writing is easier to fake, that we'll just see more of it. But on the other hand, there's a bit of cynicism that can come along with this. If it's possible to fake articles and if it's possible to fake videos really easily, this then also raises the possibility that people start to become even more skeptical and cynical about yeah. real videos and real evidence that they're they're seeing or reading about. So um, ultimately, I think. Uh, the um, the biggest worry is that these sort of things can lead to panic and and potentially uh, in the really extreme case to misconceptions that lead to violence.
Is this impossible to police? I mean, lots of chatter since the Internet started about regulation and such. Lots want to keep it the Wild West. Is this where is this the line in the sand where all of a sudden we we realize we got to do something here? Right. I'm not sure uh, where, where the legislation will come in, where policing will come in. I think um, uh, forces and counterforces are kind of um, cause and effect uh, will start to kick in where people will start to figure out how to get smart and how to get critical. I think there may be a role um, for regulations and for laws, sort of like we saw with certain kinds of images, especially sexualized images, things like this, that there are rules and limits to what you can are permitted to do. But again, even that is always a bit of an uphill battle to enforce. So I think on the one hand, yes, regulations and policy will probably start to get affected. But on the other hand, it's going to start getting mainlined into education and how citizens just need to have a, a really sharp toolkit to, to deal with all this stuff so who do we believe is the big question and obviously the answer is we've just got to be more literate in this as time goes on we have to ask more questions Right. I think that's uh, the big role that, you know, universities and educators, even, you know, um, from K to 12 education, I think there's a lot of new questions and it'll rely on us and to, to teach ourselves and to teach our kids a lot more than we have in the past about digital media, how it gets produced, and also which how institutions play a role in that. So that why the news media um, has had its mistakes, but also why we rely on it and the role that newspapers and radio shows and and yes universities and research institutes play in creating knowledge um so i think on the one hand we got to learn how to find fake news on the other hand we might need to step back and look and say well what who deserves trust who produces the stuff we trust and what habits can we get into to both understand how stuff gets made but also to be able to check it and to remember to check it every time we we consume something that piques our curiosity are we addressing these questions? Because many say there's just no policies, whether it's in a university or whether it's in government. It's just so new. There are no policies on this. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we always rise to, to, to the occasion when the new things emerge. There's always it's a little bit of a lag time and then we start responding. But I'll tell you, at, at McMaster and I know at other universities all, all around Ontario and, and Canada, there are healthy conversations happening about, OK, how do we think about fake news, think about um, AI generated false information and how do we teach in our libraries at universities and how do we teach younger uh, people in our community how to deal with this stuff and then also how do we think about how it impacts education and the essays that students are writing and how professors monitor that stuff so there's a lot of really thoughtful conversations coming now that it always takes a little bit of lag time but I'd say um, we're off to a good start having having uh, a thoughtful conversation about how those things move forward. We don't have much time left, Mark, but you talked about mistrust. Can we go back on this? Can we regain that trust? Well, I mean, hopefully, uh, but uh, I think it's always been a push and pull. Uh, ever since, you know, the, the old fashioned, you know, radio shows first started, we had a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, mass confusion and, you know, fake news. It, it tends to hop from format to format, right? From video to text to internet to chat rooms. And so there's new challenges. I don't think we ever go back to a, a before times, um, but what we can manage to do is adapt and learn and develop these new, what we call media literacies, being able to understand what's possible and then sort of bake that into our own critical thinking. Mark Busser with us, Professor of Experimental Education, Social Sciences at McMaster, talking about AI. Mark, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Public Service Alliance of Canada, that's PSAC, leadership say that all workers are in a legal strike position uh, to strike on Wednesday if they don't reach an agreement by 9 o'clock on Tuesday night. About 35,000 Canada, uh, Canada Revenue Agency workers affected, about 120,000 staff spread across uh, 20 departments, more than 20 departments and agencies are in a strike position as well. To talk more about how how this affects small business. Let's bring in Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. Thank you. So how does this affect the uh, the Can- uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business? What are the concerns of your members with this strike? Look, there are lots of worries about the possibility of a CRA strike or even a broader public service strike uh, for small business owners across Canada. Remember, small businesses have just been through the ringer over the past uh, three years. Uh, Only now, about half of businesses are back to pre-pandemic levels of sales, so they're still struggling. And if we take out the CRA, if, uh, you know, while many might celebrate, uh, the worry is that small businesses have questions often before they file their taxes. Uh, for a small, for the general public, they might only deal with the Canada Revenue Agency once a year when they file their income tax return. A small business has to do it all the time with, with HST, GST remittances, with payroll taxes like uh, EI and Canada Pension Plan premiums, and of course, their own corporate income tax. So, There are huge implications. If you, you know, the CRA has already indicated that it won't delay any of the tax filing deadlines. And and if a small business can't get answers, what are they going to do? Uh, we remember back in the days of the post office strikes and how, uh, you know, decades ago, this would literally, uh, cripple many businesses or, or e- even the country it- itself. Uh, we haven't seen that sort of thing for a long time, obviously. Or do you anticipate that that kind of impact it, that this is so interwound within everything? It, the, well, the CRAs certainly, and then of course uh, the, the 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 larger unions that are able to strike uh, on the same day, Wednesday, would include passport offices, would include the uh, Employment Insurance Commission, would include uh, immigration procedures. So the the you know a lot of the HR infrastructure for businesses and hiring, uh, terminating employees, that could come to a standstill as well. So these are, you know, it's beyond the Canada Revenue Agency. These are huge concerns. The other big, the big factor for for small business owners and other taxpayers is, of course, if the government says yes and greenlights the wage demands of the unions, this will be measured in the billions of dollars. Just the CRA union alone, we estimate their 33% wage hike that they want would cost taxpayers an extra billion dollars a year. So we're talking huge money. Uh, with with deficit spending right now, no forecast for a balanced budget for, as far as the eye can see, you know, we can see tax hikes in the future if, if these wage demands are even partially met. Uh, do you think the wage demands are serious? As you mentioned, 33 percent over thir- three years. Uh, a lot of people are just going to roll their eyes at that. That's 11 percent a year over the next three years. Uh, I've talked to one biz prof that said this is less about money and more about they just want some leverage so they can work more from home. Uh, do you have any insight in, as to how long or drawn out this could be? Or do you think you'll see a quick uh, settlement? 
Well, look, I'm still optimistic that there there could be some settlement in the in the intervening hours before the strike uh, is there. Uh, they may decide to continue negotiations, but my goodness, if they don't, that's a long way off of anything that is uh, is affordable. If you or I went into our bosses and asked for a 33 percent wage increase, I can't yeah. imagine that uh, that 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 we'd be per- particularly close to finding uh, a, a deal. We'd be uh, likely out of work. Of course, that isn't an issue for pu- federal public servants. And I guess you know when I look at this from a bigger picture perspective. Decades ago, if you worked for government, the deal was you had a secure pension, uh, you had a, much better than the private sector, you had job security, almost 100% job security, you had uh, better benefits, more holidays, but you took home less money. You, you actually had lower yeah. wages than in the private sector. Yes. That's all changed. Yeah. Now civil servants earn more than the average Canadian uh, working in the private sector. Not to mention the benefits of, uh, as well. Um, do you see, do you, do you, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but how do uh, members uh, prepare for this come midweek? Well, look, getting in all your tax filings as quickly as possible is is one way to ensure that. Obviously, taking advantage of some of the CRA's online tools uh, is helpful. There, you know, most businesses have access to a My Business account. Getting some of these things set up now would be helpful to prepare for a for a strike so that you can continue to to uh, to remit your taxes. But the question is. If you have questions as a business owner, or if you're, if say your bookkeeper or your accountant does, and they can't get answers to basic questions, uh, what do you do? And and so we're asking government to put some thought to that now to extend deadlines. If in fact there is a strike action taken, the, the early indications are that they won't do it. I think that needs to change, though, if we do go down the road of a public sector strike. Dan Kelly with us, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. A strike is looming by the Public Service Alliance of Canada. If they don't get what they need by 9 o'clock on Tuesday, we could see strike by Wednesday. Dan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Anytime. Current article in the Globe and Mail, Ottawa's lack of economic clarity drives a growing sense of frustration among investors. Canadian investors have every reason to be frustrated now more than usual. It's difficult to know what to make of the outlooks for the Canadian economy or Canadian stocks on growth, on housing, on immigration. Our elected officials offer up a torrent of slogans, but not much in the way of a clear logic or compelling rationale. This makes it difficult for investors to know what to expect over the next few years to talk more about all of this, Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Are we doing a good job of managing business opportunities in this country, considering many say coming out of a pandemic, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. It's life-changing. Well, certainly there are huge opportunities coming out of the pandemic. Um, I've been critical um, of the government uh, in talking to you and talking to my students and not on a partisan level. I do not belong to any political party, nor do I donate money to any party. I do not allow lawn signs during any election, federal, provincial or municipal on my lawn. Um, and But we can one can look at and I certainly do all the time. I look at the data, you know, whether it's uh, productivity metrics or uh, GDP per capita metrics or, or a growth, you know, any kind of a growth metric or inequality and so forth, and or or the amount of a foreign direct investment in Canada. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, some of the key metrics are in decline. 
Jack Mintz, Professor Jack Mintz at Calgary has been making this argument. Uh, David uh, Dodge, the former central bank governor, has been making this argument that we have created uh, a an environment, and I'm not now referring to the green economy, but a, um, a, a situation in Canada where investors, whether domestic or foreign, uh, find it confusing, contradictory, or sometimes simply hostile to investment. And, you know, some listeners could say, well, so what? Who cares about a bunch of rich people? First off, I'm not rich. <laughs> I depend on my salary to go buy my groceries every week. But the point that I make with my students is, and I had a, a very, very senior statistician, Philip Cross, come out to my class uh, just before the pandemic and made this, this argument very articulately. You know, if you want to know where the economy is going to be going in any country in two or three or four or five years, look at the capital investment writ large in that country today. Because today's capital investment, we're talking the investment in factories, in machinery, in equipment, computers. It, that is the productive, uh, uh, the future productivity, the future productive capacity of the economy. So that, those investments are going to produce the jobs and the growth and the incomes of tomorrow, meaning of a couple of years or three or four years from now. So when, and, and capital is mobile, far more mobile today than it was even 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when I first started working in the 70s. Then it was a really big deal to move money from Canada to the States. It was incredibly bureaucratic. It was all paper-based and it was really bureaucratic. It was not easy. Today, you can literally move money with the flick of a mouse. You can move enormous amounts of money. And, and capital is far more, it's not only more mobile today, there's vastly more information. And I mean good information. I'm not talking junk information on the web. I'm talking there's far greater knowledge about from places, thing, organizations like Bloomberg. Uh, you know, you can look up instantly and look up the productivity of any industry in the U.S. or Canada. And so the information about the opportunities is much more transparent, much more readily available. The investors are even more sophisticated and informed. And so you can't spin them or con them because they know what's going on. Now, very quickly, Scott, when you actually look at the data, uh, it, it seems very clear that the, the trend is downward. The capital aggregate investment in Canada is downward. And it's partly because we've uh, created a ton of regulations in the name of the environment. And what we've done, we've forgotten, or what I think what we're achieving is that, you know, perfection is becoming the enemy of the good. But they brag, our government brags, we've got the highest and some of the most rigorous standards in the world in industry after industry. Yes, indeed. So high that it's causing firms <laughs> or some investors to go elsewhere. And so and, and, and so governments and our finance minister, our prime minister are saying, look, no, no, we want more investment. But they seem to be speaking on both sides of their mouth because they don't walk the talk. They don't what about, create an environment that's that's in, conducive to investment. What what about renewables, Ian? Because that's the big you know uh, sales game right now. That everything is going to be we're going to invest in all this renewable energy, and that this is going to create lots of jobs. Uh, we remember the famous line of the prime minister saying he doesn't see a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas, and then shows up at Defasco talking about how they're going to electrify to get the uh, the plant off coal, and of course by using natural gas. Is this selective opportunity? Are the opportunities only in the industries they say are the renewable ones they, they want to sell. 
That's that is the point. I'm not suggesting that there isn't any investment at all. They have selectively chosen some industries that are they're claiming are are going to be growth uh, opportunities in the future. I don't even disagree with that. But first off, it's not the role of government to decide which industries are going to be the industries of the future. Governments have a notorious record for picking winners and losers. Now they claim, oh no no, and Christian Freeland said this: we don't pick winners and losers because we're not choosing the particular company that's going to win and and succeed. But that's a bit of a dodge because if you're choosing the industry that's going to succeed, you are essentially blessing the firms in that industry. So you're one step removed from Mm. choosing the winners or losers. Government is terrible at that. That's why we, in a decentralized economy, we use decentralized market forces to make those decisions. The second point very quickly, Scott, is we are not going, they're betting the farm on those green industries that you can't grow the and the entire economy of the future on one sector called in you know renewables or green renewables or green aspect aspects of the green economy there's a multiplicity of industries in canada they have put a lot of barriers in front of mining in front of logging uh in front of energy anything that isn't uh, renewable. And, and so it's a very simplistic reproach. And as I've said, it's alienating investors and they're the ones with the money. It's not me. It's not professors. It's not public servants that are going to invest in the jobs of tomorrow. We need the private sector and these people with large pools of capital. And if we are not creating a, an environment, a, an economy that is seen to be attractive, they can go elsewhere. They have opportunities. They can, they don't have to hmm. stay in Canada. They can go to any other country where they think the opportunities are superior. And we are in the fortunate and unfortunate position that we are smack dab next door to the largest economy on the planet Earth. And they speak the same language as we do. And there's a very similar set of laws in both countries because of harmonization. Mm. So it's the barriers to entry for a rich person or a rich investor to move across the border are incredibly easy. I mean, the barriers are very low and the decision to move across the border is incredibly easy. So we're, it's on the one hand, it's a blessing to be next door to the United States. On the other Mm. hand, it's a huge threat. We've got to become more competitive if we want to keep investment investing in Canada. And that's, I think, the failure of this government right now. All right. Ian, only got about 30 seconds left. Can't let you go without asking you about CBC being labeled as a government-funded media by Twitter. Your thoughts on all this rigmarole? I'll be very quick because this isn't just CBC. PBS and uh, NPR, Public Broadcasting in the States, which I do watch, and NPR, National Public Radio, are also labeled. Um, I think t- Twitter is fair. It's fair to label uh, an, an, uh, a media outlet that does get substantial or um, major government funding. But The criticism I would make of Twitter is that they're doing it very selectively. Uh, Some public broadcasters are not getting labeled and some are. So they've got to standardize their their classification system to make very clear what's the distinction between government funded versus state funded and then apply it across the board, not picking the, the the media outlets that they want to hit with this. There's nothing wrong with designating somebody to get an institution, a media outlet that gets a substantial government funding. But I think they've got to be much more consistent and fair and balanced in the way they apply it. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Scott. This is Hamilton Today with- 
with Scott Thompson. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Scott Radley joins us now, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Well, true confession. Did you just do air drum to that? Uh, no, I didn't. Really? You no, are the only was, human who that didn't. That is sacrilege. That, well, that's that's an amazing control of your body because it, like, it, people lose control of their arms when they hear that and they do it unconsciously. If I had done that, my pen would have went flying across the room <laughs> and, and hit the door or something. I was, uh, yeah, no, I was busy It would have been like a Bob Bertina so. council meeting. <laughs> Whoa, there you go. Thanks. Good night, everybody. Enjoy the steak. <laughs> We're here till Friday. Yeah, all, maybe, right, uh, all right. All uh, right. What do you want to talk about today? You know, I, I think this is kind of odd. Um, and 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 I, well, Twitter has labeled CBC as government-funded media. Yes. What are your thoughts of that? Because my first reaction is, well, it is. Yes. Uh, because they are a crown corporation, and of course are uh, uh, subsidized by the government. Now, the Canadian Media Fund is out there to help struggling broadcasters. We all, the cable companies, everybody pays into it. That's a little different beast than getting uh, a majority of your fundry, uh, funding from the taxpayer. What are your thoughts on uh, Twitter and uh, it's all Pierre Polyev's fault, I guess? Uh, yeah, you know, so you're right. I mean, it is government-funded broadcasting. So the first part is if we're worried about the truth, well, that's the truth. Now, you know, the other people would say then, well, this then, and, and CBC itself has said this, they've pulled themselves off Twitter now because they're saying, well, this makes it sound like we are not independent. And that's where, Scott, now you're going to get into the division yeah. among Canadians. Are mm-hmm. they a left-leaning liberal arm of the Liberal Party, as some would say, or are they a service that is absolutely independent, absolutely down the middle, represents all Canadians equally? You know, depending on who you are, you will have a different point of view on that. It's funny because for some reason, Scott, a lot of people think this is a new argument. And this is an argument we've been having in Canada for literally decades. This just didn't start in the bad, divisive world in a post-global pandemic world. No, and let's be honest about one part about this. Whether you love CBC or don't love CBC, and that's, you know, I'm not going to, neither you nor I are here to tell you whether you should like it or not. That's, you know, that's your choice. The one thing, though, that constantly I hear that makes me roll my eyes in the biggest ways when people say the CBC holds us together as a nation. The CBC, once upon a time, when the railroad and the CBC were the only two things that went across the country, exactly. did that. Did that today with the internet, with CTV, with global, with everything else. CBC is actually a tiny player on the national TV stage. Look at their ratings for their news. It's not yeah. significant. They have not one thing in the top 30 in this country. So, uh, look, I've, it's fine. If you like CBC, that's totally fine. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't like CBC. They do some good stuff. But I'm simply saying don't come with, come with that argument that somehow if CBC goes away, this country just folds in on itself and breaks into a million pieces. And they're really the only, the only ligature that holds all of our sinewy bones together. That's a crock of the highest order now. And it's a weak argument. It, it isn't true anymore. 
It's funny because uh, everybody's, you know, uh, debating whether the CBC is government funded media. And it is. It's a crown corporation. Why are we even focusing on that? The issue is, are they biased? That's what the concern is. Everybody already knows they're government funded. So why is everybody going getting so upset about the Twitter label when we already know that the issue is bias? That's the debate here, isn't it? And, you know, was it you I was talking to or on my own show? I don't even know now. But uh, we were talking about this the other day because there was a poll out about Trudeau or about the government or about something. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, and the, at the time we said, look, those who like the government – regardless of what's going on, are still going to like the government. Those Mm -hmm. who don't like the government, regardless of what's happening, are now going to point to this as more reason, but they're still going to dislike the government. I look at this exactly the same way. You could put on CBC's Twitter account, sacrifices small children at the altar of Satan, and the people who like CBC (laughs) are going to ignore that and say, no, they do great work, and the people who don't like it are going to go, see, it doesn't. Ultimately, I don't think there's going to be one CBC listener or viewer that says, well, I can't watch it now, and there's not going to be one non-CBC viewer that's going to say, this is why I can't start watching. Nothing, nothing changes except that we argue more. I don't know why anybody is upset here because is anybody offended by the statement that it's publicly funded media? Of course it is. That is, that's an absolute, that's a fact. But I think they're using that to avoid the bias debate. Well, it's okay. So, so the argument behind this is if you are publicly funded, then you are naturally an arm, you're a sure. propaganda arm of the government. And that's, that's the, that's the argument that those who would say this needs to be on there for. And as I said right off the top, others would say, well, lots of media are funded. And as a result, are they all arms of the government? And some people to that would also say yes. But the point is, it's, it's merely pointing out, as you say, it is pointing out a fact. It is pointing out a fact. It's a question of what do you do with that fact? What What is the interpretation and what are you going to do with that fact? Are you going to then say, well, see, because they get money from the government, clearly they must be defending the government. I'll tell you the one reason why that becomes a problem, even though some people are going to definitely agree with it. We have had conservative governments in the past. And at the time that we had a conservative government, nobody that I ever heard said, oh, this is an arm of the conservative government of propaganda. They've always still said this is a left-leaning entity. So is it – yes, it's government-funded, but that doesn't really say much, especially if Pierre Polyev wins next time and he doesn't close it down. What does it mean that it's government-funded if it doesn't support his party? It's like it's like people are 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 surprised or embarrassed that it's it's publicly funded. No, that's what it is. That's what it that's is. That's all. what it always been. <laughs> exactly. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. This continues after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, do your homework, Hamilton School Board, and honor our Canadian history. Complete proper vetting, and here are some good ideas for the HWDSB for future school names. Nathan Cirillo Public School, John McRae Public School, Vimy Ridge Public School. 